We appreciate everybody's presence again tonight. Looks like we got a good crowd this evening for uh, Sunday evening. Uh, appreciate everybody being here. School has started, and I think uh, most everybody started last week, at least for a day. Get started in earnest tomorrow for uh, a lot of school-aged children. And so we want to encourage our school-aged children, those going back to school, be strong, be strong in your faith, be strong in your commitment. Uh, school can be, uh, it can be great, you know, a lot of friends and a lot of good times, but it can be a challenge sometimes as well. And so just uh, be true to your commitment to the faith and uh, stand strong and you'll, you'll be glad you did. On Sunday evenings, we've been talking about different people that interacted with Jesus in the account of His crucifixion. They're part of the account, they're part of the story, and uh, they might not be the, the main character in the story, that's Jesus, of course, but they contribute to it, and, and we learn from them. We might pick up things that we can apply to our own lives. We, we noted at one point that in, in all of this, it's not really Jesus' character that's on trial. It's really the character of Pilate that's on trial, and the character of Judas, and the character of Peter, and others that come into the story, that interact with Jesus. Their character is really on trial. We know the character of Jesus, but it's their character that's on trial in, in this account and in these episodes, very much like it's our character that's on trial from day to day. And so, we talked about people like Judas, whose greed uh, led him to betray the Lord. And Pilate, who didn't have the courage to know what to do, what he knew was right. Each of these have a character flaw somewhere in the story. So Pilate knew what was right, knew Jesus was innocent, but he didn't have the strength of character to stand up and say, this man is innocent, I'm going to release him. Caiaphas was a man who, as we said earlier, his mind was made up. He didn't want to be confused with the facts. And so he was going to find Jesus guilty of blasphemy, even if he had to, you know, uh, be uh, 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 attorney, judge, jury, all at, all at the same time. He was going to find Jesus guilty, even if he couldn't find witnesses to testify to that, at least uh, credible witnesses. On the other hand, and then, and then Peter uh, didn't recognize his own weakness, you know, his, the potential that was within him to deny the Lord. And so then when he finds himself in a situation, he's under pressure, uh, and uh, because he didn't realize, you know, there is the danger that I might deny the Lord. Well, he gets kind of caught uh, off guard, and he ends up denying the Lord, doing something he never thought he would do. On the other hand, there are the women who are at the foot of the cross when Jesus is crucified, and they seem to follow Him kind of wherever He goes. It's the women who are strong, as is the case so often in the Bible. And then we talked about the thief on the cross as well, how uh, he turns to the Lord uh, even while he's on the cross. In the, in the eleventh hour, so to speak, he turns to the Lord, and the Lord forgives him of his sin. He has the he has the divine authority to do that, to forgive sins. And he exercises that authority on occasion, and he does on that occasion as well. We're going to look at another character. This will be the last of these. We're going to look at another character tonight, and we're going to kind of build up to his part in the story, really by beginning in the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament contains a number of prophecies concerning the coming Christ. Some of these have to do with the work that He would do. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 18, God tells Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, and the people are to listen to him. And of course, that one, that prophet that God would raise up, well, that, that's Christ. In Genesis chapter 12, we find that in Abraham's descendant, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In the second Psalm, we find that the coming Messiah will be a king. You are my son. This day I, I've begotten you. And so the coming king, the coming Messiah would be a king. He would also be a priest. You're a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the 110th Psalm. In Isaiah 53, he would atone for the sins of the people. And so we find in the Old Testament these prophecies from place to place, various places, that describe the work of the Messiah. He's prophet. He's priest. He's king. He makes atonement for sin. But then we find out about other features of his life. As he said a moment ago, he'll be the, from the seed of Abraham. 2 Samuel 7, he'll be a descendant of David and would sit on God's throne forever. His kingdom would never come to an end. Micah 5, verse 2, he'll be born in the city of Bethlehem. Isaiah 7, 14, he'll be born of a virgin. Isaiah 53 tells us there's no stately form or majesty in him that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we be, should be attracted to him. So he was an average-looking person, apparently. Nothing remarkable about his facial features or about his physique or his physical appearance. And so that's, all of those things are found in the Old Testament. As people read these, these prophecies about the coming Messiah, some of them must have been puzzling to the readers. We know that from Acts chapter 8. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch is riding along and he's reading from Isaiah. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before a shearer is silent, so he doesn't open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment is taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth. And you remember, Ethiopia says, well, who's he talking about? I don't understand this. You know, is he the prophet talking about himself or, or someone else? And so some of the Old Testament prophecies must have been a little bit confusing to those who read them at first. Now, they're clarified in Christ, you know. We, we can see very easily how they point to Christ, but, but people like the Ethiopian eunuch and others, well, they must have been a little confused about it all. Well, Isaiah chapter 53, there's another element of this particular prophecy that we're going to focus in on tonight. In verse 9, speaking of the servant of the Lord, the one who's going to come, make atonement for sin and so forth, it said of him, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a, with a rich man in his death. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Well, how can that be fulfilled? Where's the fulfillment of that? Well, that brings us to Matthew chapter 27. So let's go over there, Matthew chapter 27. We can see what I think is the fulfillment of that statement in Isaiah 53, with a rich man in his death. So Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is convicted. He's sentenced to death. Of course, he's totally innocent. Everybody knows he's innocent. But he's sentenced to death nonetheless, and he's executed on the cross. 
He's there for six hours from uh, the third hour to the ninth hour, and he, he dies. When he dies, verse 57 says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate, asked him for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out, uh, out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. The, the, the following verses, 62 and following, tell us how the Pharisees, the, the next day, went to Pilate and said, we need a guard to guard the tomb, and, and that, that was granted. And so we talk about Joseph of Arimathea and his contribution, what we might learn from his contribution to, to the story. I'm really just going to make a couple of points. So we're going to talk about Joseph and talk about what we know about Joseph, and then we're going to make a couple of points from, from this account. All four gospel accounts tell us about Joseph of Arimathea. That's interesting to me that all four of them would talk about this particular man and what he did in burying the body of Jesus. Now, what do we know about him? Well, first of all, we know his name. Now, all four gospel accounts tell us his name, and they tell us where he's from. All four of them give us that detail. It's not as though one of them says, and there was a man who came from Arimathea and buried. All of them mention his name. Now, not everybody's name is mentioned in, in this account. And so the two witnesses that stood up and testified falsely against Jesus, well, we don't know their names. The thief on the cross, well, we don't know his name. The centurion who said, surely this is the Son of God. We, we don't know his name. And so we don't know everybody's name. But then there are people's names that we do know. We know Peter and Judas, for example, and the women, and Simon of Cyrene. We know we know his name. And we know the name of Joseph. We, we know. Now, I'm not sure what to make of that. <laughs> I'd like to think that he became a disciple. Kind of a well-known disciple, perhaps, in some places. And so... And so the writers of the Gospels are telling their readers, now this was Joseph. He's a disciple. Now he became a disciple, but I like to think he continued in his being a disciple of Jesus and of some notoriety because of what he had done and the respect that he showed Jesus. He's from Arimathea, small town, 20, 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. But now he lives in Jerusalem and his, his, he and his family must live there. In Jerusalem. So he's come from Arimathea, that's his hometown, but now he's relocated in Jerusalem. We know that he was rich. Now I don't know how he made his money, but we know that he was a, a wealthy man, and we also know that he was a member of the council, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now Mark says he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. So not, not just one of the members, but a leading member, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Now, you remember what the Sanhedrin was. That was sort of the official highest court of the Jews. And that was the body that officially condemned Jesus to death. And so jo jo Joseph was part of that body, the body that officially condemned Jesus to death. Now, now just hang in there with me. Got more to add about Joseph than that. 
We know something about his character. We know his name, where he's from. We know he was rich. We know he was on the council. We also know that he was a good and righteous man. And so we're not going to read all of these passages, but Luke chapter 23 and verse 50 tells us that he was a good and righteous man. All right, so he wasn't one of those that were just dead set against Christ. No matter what the evidence was, he was bound and determined to have him killed. He, that, that wasn't Joseph. He was a good man. And he was a righteous man, even though he was rich. Now remember what Jesus says about rich people and the kingdom of God, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. But Joseph of Arimathea certainly was one that, that, that was rich and yet a good and righteous man. Now he was a disciple of Jesus. We saw that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. He had become a disciple of Jesus. But turn over to John's Gospel and we get a little bit more information about his being a disciple of Jesus. Verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took his body. And so Joseph is a good and righteous man. He's on the council, but he's a good and righteous man. And he's a disciple of Jesus, but he hasn't told anybody about it yet. A secret one. He hasn't come out in public as a disciple of Jesus yet. Luke chapter 23 and verse 51 tells us that he was not consenting to the plan to kill Jesus. That's Luke chapter 23 verse 51. He had not consented to their plan and action. And so he's on the council, but he doesn't agree to their having Jesus executed. He's a good and righteous man. He's a disciple of Jesus, secret one, but a disciple. He doesn't agree with what they're going to do with Jesus. That might raise this question. How, how could he be a member of the council, a, a prominent member, and not be in agreement? If you go back to Luke chapter 22, it's very clear that it's the council that condemns Jesus to death. Luke 22 and verse 66 when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to the, their council chamber, saying, If you're the Christ, tell us. And as that unfold, unfolds, they condemn him to death. And so how can, how can Joseph be a member of the council, prominent member, and yet be not, in a, not be in agreement to his death? Well, he could have just been absent when that decision was made. He might not have been there. Or he might have been there and just been quiet, you know, just abstained. You know, he was a disciple, but a secret one. Or, or so there may be some other explanation, but it's very clear from Luke 23 that he didn't, he didn't agree with what they were doing with Jesus. And Mark chapter 15 and verse 43 tells us that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Again, Mark 15, 43, he's waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, he heard Jesus preach, apparently. Jesus went about, you know, from the very beginning, Matthew chapter 4, even before the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that He went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom. He's waiting for the kingdom. And so no wonder He becomes a disciple. Jesus is, He's the one we've been waiting for. Uh, and so He embraces the teaching of Jesus about the kingdom, and about Jesus being the king of the kingdom, no doubt. 
It reminds me of Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. We read about Simeon who encountered Jesus, and Jesus was taken to the temple at eight days old. It says, this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 3 that the people are in a state of expectation. And so the people are excited about the possibility the kingdom of God might be just about to break in. And here's one who's waiting for the kingdom. He's a good and righteous man. He's a disciple of Jesus. And so when Jesus is killed, he goes and he asks for the body. So let's talk about what he did a little bit. He, he goes and he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus, and he wants to bury it in his own tomb. Now he doesn't ask the council, does he? He doesn't go to the council and say, I'd like to have the body of Jesus. Ultimately, I suppose Pilate is in control of those events, and so he goes to Pilate. But the council finds out about it, don't they? And so the council then goes to Pilate, and they say, we need to put a guard up at the tomb. So they know about the tomb. They know that Jesus has been buried in the tomb, and no doubt they know whose tomb it is. And so, and so they find out about what Joseph has done. They, they hear about it. And so this is a very bold act, isn't it? It seems simple to us. Just go and you ask for the body of Jesus, and you want to give it a decent burial. But but this is really quite, quite an impressive and very bold act. Victims of crucifixion were not usually buried by Romans. The Romans crucified someone. The victim was just left on the cross until his body just decayed and decomposed and fell. <laughs> the birds would come and eat it, or the other animals would come and eat the body until just, until just rotted away. Now, the Jews, however, did bury their dead. The, the Jews would bury even, even criminals, even those who were convicted. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And so the Jews did bury their dead. Now Romans were not all that concerned about burying, especially the, the, those who had been crucified, but the Jews, they did bury the dead. And so jo uh, Joseph comes to Pilate. He asks for the body of Jesus. Josephus tells us that even enemies should be buried, but those who blaspheme should be buried in an ignominious and obscure mat manner. And so no pomp, no circumstance, no big celebration. Here's someone who's, who's guilty, who's blasphemed. They bury them, but no, you know, no, no celebration, no, no big deal is to be made. You might remember over in Matthew, Matthew's account of, of these things, after uh, Judas betrays Jesus. Remember, he tries to give the money back to, uh, to the chief priests and so forth. And they take that money. They, they, don't, they don't keep it. They don't put it in the treasury of the temple. But they bought a potter's field as a burying place for strangers. And so here, here are strangers, <laughs> and they were just put into, just put into a grave. Uh, but again, no, no ceremony, nothing like that. Just a, an obscure manner. And usually it was a family member that would ask for the body. But here's a stranger, isn't it? It's not, it's not a family member. 
And he wants to go and he take, wants this body to bury it, not in, in some obscure map, but in his own tomb, his own family tomb. And so to take the body of a stranger and bury it in a family tomb, a brand new one at that, that's, a, that's first of all a remarkable act of kindness, isn't it? That's, that shows great respect, doesn't it? He's going to step forward, he's going to take this stranger, he's not a family member, he's going to take it and put it in his own new tomb. That's a, that's a really remarkable act of kindness. Only a few hours remain before the Sabbath after Jesus died. Remember, He dies about 3 o'clock. The Sabbath's going to start about 6 o'clock, and they can't do any work on the Sabbath, and so they've got to get the body down, they've got to prepare it, they've got to put it in the tomb before the Sabbath begins. And so John tells us that they bury Jesus according to the custom of the Jews. And so there were several things have to be done. Got to get the body down from the cross. You got to wash the body. You got to prepare it for burial. You got to wrap it up. They had to go and buy a linen cloth. They had to go buy one. Mark tells us they purchased one. So all of that has to be done. So it might not have been Joseph by himself. He might have had some help. He's a rich man. Maybe he had some servants. But John chapter 19 tells us he got some help from another source as well. Look at John 19 verse 39. It says, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. They took the body of Jesus, bound it in, a linen, in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews, and, and so they, they put him in the tomb. It's interesting. that it, Nicodemus is an interesting story, isn't it? So he comes to Jesus by night. A little bit later in John chapter 7, Nicodemus speaks up when they're trying to figure out what to do about Jesus. Speaks up, now, now you know, we, we don't condemn a man unless we hear what he has to say and see what he does. So he kind of steps out a little bit in defense of Jesus. And, and here, here's a public act where he goes and helps prepare the body of Jesus for burial. Did Nicodemus become a disciple of Jesus? Well, you know, just take all that into consideration, and, and maybe so. Maybe he did. Well, let's just make a few observations about the story of Josephus and just make a couple of points here. Not Josephus, Joseph. I keep wanting to say Josephus tonight for some reason, but, but it's Joseph. The first is that Joseph's contribution to these events provides evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, one of the things that we learn from what happens as Joseph takes the body and buries it, that gives us more confidence in the story of the resurrection. So let's just look at the facts of the case. Joseph goes to Pilate and asks for the body. Well, Mark's account tells us that Pilate's a little surprised that Jesus is already dead, and so he asks the centurion about it. Is Jesus already, is it, this man wants the body, is he already dead? And the centurion says, yes, he's already dead. And so Pilate gives Joseph the body. And so the witnesses to Jesus' death are adding up, aren't they? And so you've got the people at the scene of the crucifixion. You've got the, the soldiers that go and break the legs, you remember, of the victims. Now remember they said Jesus was already dead, and so they didn't break his legs. So there, there are more witnesses that Jesus has died. In John chapter, uh, chapter 19, 
Um, the one who writes this account says in verse 35, He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth so that you may believe. So here's another witness that Jesus has died. Now, one who's writing this, he, he, I'm just telling you what I saw, you know. And now you've got uh, the testimony of the centurion who oversaw the procedure. Pilate asked him, is he dead? Yes, he's dead. I was there, I saw it. He was dead. And then add to that the fact that Joseph and Nicodemus and whoever else might have been involved in, in all of this, they handled the body. And so for a while, probably a couple of hours at least, they're handling the lifeless body of Jesus. You know, certain things happen to the body as soon as it dies. The temperature begins to drop, for example. And other things happen to the body, begin to happen immediately when a person dies. And so these people are handling the dead body of Jesus. They could feel Him. They could feel the body temperature. They felt His lifelessness. They saw His color. You know, the color of a person changes when they die. If you've been in the room and somebody has died, you, you know, you know, this looks different. And so for a couple of hours you have these people, they're handling the dead body. And so they would have known that Jesus was dead. And then we learned some things about the tomb. The tomb was new. It was hewn out of a rock. No corpse had ever been laid there. Jesus was the only one in the tomb. A large stone was rolled over its opening. Matthew 27 tells us that the women were watching where Jesus was laid. And so that's uh, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 61. Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. And Mark's account tells us that they're taking note of where he was buried. And so the, the resurrection deniers, the critics cannot say, the women went to the wrong tomb. <laughs> no. They were, they were taking note which tomb he was buried in. Now this wasn't an ordinary tomb, was it? If you go to the cemetery, if you go to Elmwood, you can, you can see pretty easily the markers of those who are wealthy <laughs> from those who are. Now that's not true of everyone. A lot of times wealthy people, they have rather elaborate tombs. And so this was not a grave that's dug in the ground and the body. This is, a, this is the tomb of a, of a rich family. It's been cut out of a rock. And so maybe in an old quarry or something like that that's now going to be used as a cemetery. And so in the ledge, they take their tools and they dig out this room out of the rock. They dig, dig, dig a room that you could walk into. And they cut shelves in the walls of the room. And they, that's where they, they wrap the body and lay the body there. So it's not just an ordinary tomb, is it? So the women are watching. They see where Jesus is buried. And, and again, probably not an ordinary tomb. So, and so, no, they didn't go to the wrong tomb. Somebody might say, well, you know, there are probably several bodies in the tomb. And the disciples just got confused about which body was the body of Jesus. And they, they just said he had been raised when really he was still there. And no, no, that, that, that can't be right because... Jesus was the only body in the tomb. His was the only body that had ever been in the tomb. <laughs> it's not like, well, we used to have some bodies in here, but we took... No, no, no. His was the only body there that had ever been there. And so they can get confused because there are several bodies in the tomb. 
Well, maybe somebody took the body of Jesus out the back. No? There wasn't a back entrance, you know. This is cut out of a rock. There, there was no way into the tomb from the back door. If the body was removed, who, who would have removed it? Well, you know, the women go to the tomb expecting to find the body. <laughs> they're going to prepare it permanently for burial. And so they're, they're not expecting him to be raised from the dead. When they came back, when the women came back to the disciples and told them what they had seen and experienced there at the tomb, Luke tells us in chapter 24, verse 10, that their words appeared to them as nonsense. You went to the tomb and it was empty and you saw these, That's, you're crazy, you know, this is, non, this is nonsense. And so, in other words, the disciples, would, they didn't take the body. They expected the body of Jesus to stay in, in the grave. The Romans didn't take the body, the Jews didn't take the body. If, did, if, the, if the body was taken, who, who took it? And how would they have taken it? This large stone that's rolled over the entrance to the tomb. When the women, here's a group of women, they're going to the tomb and they, they, they need somebody to help them get the stone away from the door. So this is not easily removed. No, the tomb was secure. No one could have removed the body once it had been put into the tomb and it was sealed. It, it was secure. And yet... When these disciples go to the tomb on the first day of the week, the tomb is empty. Well, what happened to it? Well, not what they say. <laughs> and they staked their life on it and gave their life for it. Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead. We saw him. We handled him. We ate with him, you know, after he was raised from the dead. And so here's this little episode involving Joseph of Arimathea. Don't read about him in connection with anything else in the Bible. But the, the contribution, his activity, helps us in, our, in our, our faith, the strength of our faith and our confidence in the resurrection. Here's the other point that I want to make before we close tonight. It teaches us something about being a disciple. We've already noted from John chapter 19 and verse 38 that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. But remember that statement there, but a secret one, a secret one. Now, he was afraid of the Jews. You know, that's, uh, it says a secret one for fear of the Jews. Now, he wasn't the only one to keep his faith in Christ a secret for fear, was he? Well, he wasn't the only one. You can put Peter in that category, you know, at least on one occasion. But there are others as well. If you go back to John chapter 12 and look at verse 42, many of the rulers believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they weren't confessing him for fear that they may be put out of the synagogue. And so there were other people who were believing in him, but they were afraid to, to, to come out and, and, and confess their faith publicly. So with all the opposition to Jesus... You know, Joseph, if he, would, if he would have identified with Jesus in a public way, he might have lost his seat on the council. He might have lost his reputation. He may have lost his wealth for that matter, so he had a lot to lose. And so I don't know if that entered into his thinking about keeping it secret or not, but he had some reason for keeping it secret. Look at Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, we're going to begin in, in, verse, in verse 42 and read down through a few verses. When evening had already come, because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And 
gathered up his courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That little observation, he gathered up his courage. He was a disciple, but a secret one. But the time had come for him to step out. And so he gathered up his courage. He knew this was going to be a public thing, didn't he? He knew people were going to find out. <laughs> so he gathers up his courage, and he goes to Pilate, and he says, I want the body of Jesus. And it was given to him. It was a public act. Others would have seen it and known about it. Word would have gotten around. But Joseph disregards all of that and takes the body of Jesus and gives it an honorable burial. He steps out in a public act of support as a disciple in the face of danger. He steps out in public as a disciple in the face of danger. Now there's a lesson for us right there, isn't it? And so I think about our young people, they're going back to school. You know, you, 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 might, you might tend to be a secret disciple. You've got your reasons for not letting everybody know that or, or being too out there about that. But the time's coming when you need to step out and step up as a disciple in the face of danger, like Joseph of Arimathea did. And he knew what the risk was. He knew what there was to lose. And yet, on this occasion, he steps up. So Joseph teaches us that there are times when we have to gather up our courage and act. You see, there's always been an element of danger in being a Christian. There's, it's always been that way. There never has been a time when it wasn't that way. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, not if they insult you, but when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Always been danger involved in being a disciple. There have always been those who are going to persecute those who follow Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the uh, disciples on what we call sometimes the limited commission, He sends them out. He's preaching. They're preaching to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And has a long passage here, really just constitutes a warning of them about the danger. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be shrewd as serpents and innocent of do as doves. Beware of men. They will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and on and on and on. You're, I'm, I'm putting you in a dangerous situation. You have to gather up your courage and take a stand as a disciple. Early disciples of Jesus face many dangers. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 11 that he's constantly being delivered over to death. Continually being delivered over to death. Sort of lived under this cloud of possibility of death as a preacher of the gospel. I was reminded of the statement over in Acts chapter 20, Paul's meeting there with the elders from Ephesus. And he says in verses 22 and 23, now, behold, being bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying, the bonds and afflictions await me. I know, I, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen, but I know, if it's already been told, bonds and afflictions are going to await, uh, waiting for me there. 
But he gathers up his courage and he goes and preaches anyway. And we may not face those same kinds of threats, but even today there are threats nonetheless. If we stand up and we speak out for Christ and we say, I'm not going to do that, you know, I'm not going to say that, I'm not going to go there, I'm trying to live a godly life, there may be consequences to that. But it's time to gather up our courage, isn't it? And take that stand. We might think, well, you know, it'd be better for me if I just remain a secret disciple at school or at work. So I, I just keep my mouth shut, and this situation, it'll, it'll pass. We kind of get back to normal things, you know. We might think that way sometimes, you know. The time comes when you just got to gather up your courage and say, I'm a Christian, I, I can't do that. And so, think about Joseph, who stepped out courageously and stood with Christ. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 10 that those who confess Christ will be confessed before the Father. But those who deny Christ before men will be denied before the Father. Have you ever noticed in Revelation chapter 21, here you have this list of those who's, who uh, burn in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Look at the list. The first one on the list is the cowardly. You know, the, the fearful. And so Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple for fear, but he got over that fear and he took a stand with Christ. P P Peter and jo Joseph kind of make an interesting contrast, don't they? Peter was a public disciple, but it, when he was tempted, he wanted to keep it secret. Joseph was a secret disciple. When the time came, he made it public. Now, which one of those do we want to be like? <laughs> be like one of them. We can be like one of them. Which one do you want to be like? Be like Joseph. Maybe a secret disciple in the past. Gather up your courage. Take a stand for Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, again, we're thankful for this opportunity today, the opportunity to come and to worship you. And we pray that what we've done today have been, has been pleasing to you. We pray that we've benefited by it, that we've been uplifted and strengthened. And uh, something has been done or said today that will help us along the way. Father, we're, we're thankful for Joseph. We're thankful for his good example. We're th that we don't know much about him. Not a whole lot is said about him. But what we do know is inspiring to us. Help us, Father, to be like Him. Help us to be courageous and brave and take a stand, knowing what the consequences may, may be, but take that stand anyway. And uh, let those consequences fall. We know, Father, that that will be well-pleasing to You. And that's our ultimate goal, to be pleasing to You, so that we might have that home in heaven when this life is over. Help us, Father, to be aware of our words and our deeds, how they not only affect us, but how they affect those around us. And help us to be a good, strong, powerful example of what a disciple ought to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.